0: Well, here we are, our second week of online services. I don't want to say that this is becoming the norm, but for the next few weeks, it is going to be the norm for us. And our hopes are that we eventually are going to be able to gather back together corporately and to be able to celebrate again. But until then, I'm very grateful for all that God has done. God has given us some incredible technology, and because of that technology, We can be in your home right now. We can be doing exactly what we're doing in this moment. So I'm grateful for the technology. But even more than the technology, I'm grateful for the personnel that God has given to us at Scotts Hill the skilled individuals who can pull this off and who are going to pull this off week in and week out. So for our production team, let me give a great shout-out to them. For our worship team, let me give a shout-out to you. For all those of you who are volunteering to make all of these online services effective, Thank you so much for what you are doing and how you are helping us during these days. In fact, you at home, you can participate in this, and I want to encourage you to do this. I want you to be able to give thanks for these individuals, too. You may not know them all by name, but we can certainly give thanks to the Lord. So here's what I want you to do. On the count of three, I want you to clap together and just say, Thank you, team. Say it together. Look at one another. Celebrate together. Yeah, yeah, you too, Bill Brinkley. Get up. Uh, I I want us all to be able to do this together. So on the count of three, clap your hands and say, thank you, team. Are you ready? One, two, three. Thank you, team. Yes, thanks, thanks. And we're so grateful for them. And we're grateful for their work that they're continuing to do. Listen, we know that these are some trying times for a lot of people. There's some of you right now that you don't even know if you're going to have a job next week. Some of you have already told, been told that not to come back to work. Some of you are wondering what all of this is going to lead to. And there, there are a lot of questions and a lot of concerns. In fact, this last week I had a young person come to me and the young person asked me this question. They said, Pastor Phil, what is the world coming to? What is the world coming to? That's a great question. But dependent upon your historical worldview will determine how you answer that question. In fact, there are at least three prevailing worldviews today. And those three worldviews that are based around history will determine how you answer that question, what is our world coming to? One of those prevailing views is what we know as the cyclical view of history. The cyclical view of history just sees history as a a, a continuous long line of repeating situations and events through history that actually have no meaning. In the cyclical view, you're not concerned with the past and you're not concerned with the future. You're only concerned with the immediacy of the moment. And so legitimate decisions of right or illegitimate decisions of wrong do not matter. The only thing that matters is right now in a pragmatic view of life. In a cyclical view where there is no God who created everything, there's no moral standard, there's no right, and there's no wrong. So the decisions and the responsibilities we have within this view really are meaningless, and history means nothing. But there's a second view out there that's a prevailing view today, and that's the atheistic naturalism view of history. And the naturalism view of history, it differs from the cyclical view in that it's not a circle, but it's a linear line. But like that of the cyclical view, there is no meaning. It's just a series of events that take place throughout the course of human history that have no significance. As a matter of fact, you're just part of an impersonal process where humanity was never in mind in the first place. There is no end. There's no goal. There's no target. There's no great advance for the future. It just continues on in a successive list of activities that have no meaning. History can teach us, but mostly in this view, history teaches us nothing. But then there's the third prevailing view, and this is the biblical view of history. And the biblical view of history has a clear beginning, a sustaining point, and a conclusion. In the biblical view of history, there is God the creator who created history and began it. He is the one that sustains history and he holds it. And he is the one that brings history to a conclusion and to its ultimate end. With this particular view, everything has a purpose. Everything has a meaning. Because behind every event, there's the providential hand of God who's working and directing all things after the counsel of his pleasure. It is a linear line, and that line is moving towards a specific end, and that is to the glory of God and to eternity. So if you ask the question, uh, what is the world coming to, to a cyclical historian, he would say it's coming to nothing. The only thing that matters is the moment. If you ask the question, what is the world coming to, to a naturalistic person in history, They would say it's coming to nothing. It means nothing. It continues on. But if you ask a person who holds a biblical view of history, what is the world coming to? They would say it's coming to the fulfillment of God's purposes and pleasures. It is coming to the point where the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords will rule all things. It's coming to the place where we will be with him forever. In his presence and in his glory, it's coming to a very specific point and an end which will complete all things according to his will. Now, those people who hold the cyclical view and those people who hold the naturalistic view, people would say, why would they hold such a fatalistic view? And here's why. If I can believe in a system where I know that there is no deity that has the beginning, the the sustaining, and the ending of time, and if I can hold to a system that has no deity that will hold me accountable to my thoughts, my actions, and my deeds, and if I can hold to a system that has no deity that's going to hold consequences over my head for rebellion and disobedience, then I can more easily accept a meaningless view of life. Rather than to give an account to a God who one day I will have to stand before with everything in me. It is that very thought, that issue that forcibly brings us to the point of the second coming of Christ. It is because of that reality that one day every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is going to stand in the presence of a holy God and is going to give an account for their lives. And it's because of that view that we talk about the second coming. It's because of that view that we understand that all things ultimately are going to come to an end to the glory of God and it's because of that view that the Apostle Paul in First Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5 speaks about this second coming of the reality of the fulfillment of all God's promises to humanity. We've been looking at First Thessalonians. We've entitled this series, Faithful. And as we've been looking at it, we've been looking at how do we live our lives between two big events, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus on one hand and the return of the Lord Jesus on the other. And as Paul is teaching these these believers in Thessalonica, he's helping them to understand all of these events. Now, last week we looked at chapter 4, and we looked at the return of Jesus And as we looked at that, the Apostle Paul was not speaking to them as a theologian. He was speaking to them primarily as a pastor because they were confused about the second coming of Christ. They were confused and disheartened about those fellow believers who died before the rapture. They wondered what would happen to them. Would they be second-class citizens in heaven? Would they miss out on the second return? Would they not receive a resurrected body? So the Apostle Paul speaks to them. He gives them five words of comfort He speaks to them about revelation. You have truth. Rest in it. He speaks to them about the promise of a return of Jesus personally. He speaks to them about the mystery of the rapture and that one day these things will unfold. He speaks to them about the incredible, wonderful reunion that's going to be in heaven. And he speaks to them about their responsibility. Now we come to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, they are once again confused. So the Apostle Paul is helping to clear up their thinking and their mind. And in verses 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul helps them to understand three specific pieces of advice on how they are to live as they wait for his return. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes it this way. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Will you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your continued instruction in our life. And Father, as we are now gathered with our families, we're in our living rooms, we might be in our own room, wherever we are, may you use these truths to encourage us today. And Father, in the hope and the reality of the coming of your Son, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the Apostle Paul is speaking to these young Thessalonians, these young believers in the Lord, but he's also speaking to us as well. And he gives three pieces of advice, and this is what I want us to focus on the rest of our time. The three pieces of advice that will help us as we eagerly await the coming of our Lord. Here's the first thing he says to this Thessalonians, and he is also saying to us, we are to avoid improper curiosity. Now, he says, you are to be careful not to be too caught up with a curious mind. In verse 1, he tells them this. He says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. That's really interesting. He's speaking to them right here about not paying too much attention to the times and the seasons. You see, he already taught them. He said, I don't have to teach you anymore. I've given you everything you need to know. Now, certainly the apostle Paul hasn't taught them everything there is to know about the second coming of Christ, but he taught them what they needed to know. He says, I don't have any need to teach you anymore. He says, and you keep asking about the times and the dates. These Thessalonians wanted to know some specifics. They wanted to know times. They wanted to know dates. They wanted to know when Jesus is coming back. And Paul seems to be saying to them, it's not about accurate chronology. It's about accurate theology. And I've already taught you what is going to happen. You don't need to know all the specific details of it. He wants them to have this imminent understanding of the return of Jesus. If he told them Jesus was coming back a thousand years from then, they would become complacent and indifferent with the gospel. And not want to share with others. If he told them that Jesus was coming back that week, then they would want to panic. But he told them everything they needed to know. He says, don't be overly curious about this. Don't develop an improper curiosity. Now, I want you to know the Thessalonians are not the only people who do that. The disciples themselves did that when they were with the Lord Jesus. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And before he goes, the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, ask him a question. And here's what they ask. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He said, it's not for you to know that. Even the Lord Jesus said that. The disciples want to know, when are you coming back? When are you going to establish your kingdom? Jesus says, it's not for you to know. You know what he says in the next verse? You go be my witnesses. Listen, don't spend your time worrying about all of these things. Don't get caught up in all these details. You go into the highways and you tell people about me. You go to the byways and you share the good news of Jesus. You go everywhere you need to go and you be at work in the work of the kingdom Don't have an improper curiosity. The Lord Jesus and Paul says the same thing. Now, from this passage, there are three things that can help us from keeping developing an improper curiosity. Let me give you those three things. Number one, Jesus' coming will be secret. He says his coming will be secret. That means it is not knowable. Here's how Paul puts it. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus says basically the same thing. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son but the Father only. And then in verse 44 of chapter 24, he says, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, this is incredible because what he's saying here is it is going to be secret. It's something you don't know and you cannot know. Jesus says it. Paul says it. Now, Paul uses the imagery of a thief in the night, which is a great picture because when a thief comes into your home, He doesn't announce his presence. He is unexpected. Now, it would be wonderful if you went to your mailbox one day and there was a postcard from a man who said, Dear sir or madam, I'm going to burglarize your house next week. As a matter of fact, I'm going to arrive about 2 a.m. next Tuesday. You won't hear me coming and you won't hear me leave, so don't bother to get up. Just thought I would let you know. (laughs) Now, that would be a very dumb thief. He would get caught every time. But the point here that Jesus is making is very clear, is that it is going to be something that is going to be secret. Now, like the Thessalonians and like the disciples, ever since that time, the church has always been wanting to know. We're wanting to know specific dates, specific times, and you can go through the history of humanity since the church and you will find that have been a lot of people trying to make predictions of when Jesus is coming. There was a man in the 17th century by the name of John Napier. John Napier, you might you might recognize his name. He is the father of logarithms. He's the one that discovered logarithms and created it as a formula. John Napier took his very own logarithms and tried to discern when Jesus would return. By his own logarithms, he decided that Jesus would come back in 1700. So in 1688, John Napier wrote a book about it. And it was a bestseller. And for 12 years, his book was a bestseller. And for 12 years, it went through 23 different editions. Everybody wanted the book until 1701, when Jesus didn't come back. And after that time... His book hasn't sold very well since then. And then you may remember this. Some of you remember in 1988. There was a man by the name of Edgar C. Wisnett. He wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. The book began to sell like hotcakes. People were buying it. Everybody was looking at his information. They thought, is this a possibility until 1989 came? And Jesus did not. But you know that didn't dampen his spirit. You know what he did? The next year, he wrote another book entitled 89 Reasons Jesus Will Come Back in 89. And the subtitle was What Went Wrong? But he retitled it The Final Shout, Rapture Report 1989. Again, he was proved to be wrong. Now here's the problem. When you and I have an improper curiosity of when he is coming back, we can do a number of things like these people done. Number one, we violate the word of God because we try to figure out something God said we cannot know. Secondly, we become deceived ourselves and we weaken the cause of the gospel among the lost. Why do I say that? Because even unbelievers know that nobody knows when Jesus is coming back, even according to Jesus himself. So, we need to understand that his coming is secret and that none of us will ever know. But here's the second thing we need to know about his coming. His coming will be sudden. It will happen suddenly. Notice how Paul writes it to the Thessalonians in verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The Lord Jesus said basically the same thing. We find in Matthew chapter 24, verses 26 through 27, he says, So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus is saying this, and I love that he makes it so very clear He's saying, listen, if somebody says, I'm out in a field, I'm not there, don't go look for me. If somebody says, I'm in that room, don't go look for me, I'm not there. My coming will be so sudden, it's going to be like lightning from across the sky. It's going to happen that quickly. Now, in this um, picture, the apostle Paul doesn't use a thief, which is unexpected. He uses a pregnant woman, which is expected. This is a woman who is pregnant. And if you know anything about pregnancy, the closer you get to that time of due date, when those labor pains come, they become more intensive as you get closer. And everybody that knows a nine-month pregnant woman is about to give baby birth, it is expected, and we understand that. But as it gets closer, the intensity of the birth pains increase. I remember when Chris was giving birth to our first child, Ryan. We were in the hospital, and and she was going through all of the contractions. She was hurting. She was in pain. These were the days before we had the digital devices that gave us the readouts. Um, These days, we had paper and needles and graphs. And as my wife was going through these contractions, that needle was just working up and down. So I thought I'd be very helpful, and I'd let her know when the contractions are becoming very severe, as though she didn't know that. And so she's laying in the bed, and that needle goes up, and I look at her, and I say, ooh, baby, that one must have hurt. That one went right off the charts. And I was so glad she couldn't reach me at that moment and grab hold of me. But here's the picture that he's painting here. He's saying, just as a thief comes unexpectedly in the night, that when he comes suddenly, It will be expected, and it will be unstoppable. In other words, let me put it this way. The Apostle Paul says that that we are to, when he returns, he will be like a secret, like a thief, unexpected. His coming will be sudden, like a pregnant woman, unescapable. So we see that, first of all, it is secret. Secondly, it is going to be sudden. But here's the third thing about it. His coming will bring separation. It's going to bring separation. Now, this comes from the Lord Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 through 42, Jesus says this, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The Lord Jesus is not telling us that 50% of the people are going to be taken away. That's not the point of this. The point of this is that those who belong to Jesus will be removed from this place. And those who do not belong to Jesus will remain. There will be a separation between those who have a relationship with Christ and those who do not. It will be secret. It will be sudden. There will be a a separation. Now, here's the key. You and I are not to spend our time trying to figure out all of these things and having an improper curiosity of his return. We are to trust him in these things. We are to walk in the things that we need to know, and we stay with those things as we wait for him. We are to avoid an improper curiosity. But then he tells us what we are to do. Secondly, he says that we are to affirm our proper identity. We are to affirm our proper identity. I love the way he puts this because then he gives us a number of contrast. And he says what our identity should be as believers. As we're waiting on him, there should be a distinct identity in every child of God. And as we wait, he gives us some contrast with the world on what we should be and how we should be distinctly different. In fact, in these passages, he gives us three ways we are to be distinctively different. First of all, he says this, we are to have a distinct nature. Our nature is to be contrary to the nature of the world. Now, the contrast that he used in this picture is that of light and darkness. And he puts it this way. He says, but you are not light in the world. And then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And then the apostle Paul is writing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. John even puts it this way, if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. Here's the thing that we know. There's a distinction between light and darkness. We are children of the light. Darkness represents sin. It represents unrighteousness. It represents um, ignorance to spiritual truths and it represents death it always does light is the opposite of that every one of us was born in spiritual darkness we were born spiritually dead we were born as sinners we were born separated from God light is contrary to that light brings life light is about holiness and purity and righteousness and revelation and truth When a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, their nature is radically changed. They at once were people of darkness, but in Christ now we're people of light. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Paul says, you have come out of light into darkness. And when we walk in light, we no longer walk according to that nature of darkness. We are distinctively different. Many years ago, our, our family went to Tuckalichi Caverns, which is in Tennessee. And as we made our way in those caverns, we went all the way down to its lowest point called the ballroom. And in the ballroom were the stalactites on the ceilings and the stalagmites on the floor. And as we were in that ballroom, the guide guy put us very close together. He says, get as close as you can. And as we did, he turned the lights off. And it was pitch dark. I mean, it was the darkest darkness I had ever experienced in my life. You can wave your hand in front of your face. You could not even see it. So I thought, how many people could I hit on the head? And they would never even know who hit them. But as I'm sitting there in the dark and I'm, I'm doing this, all of a sudden the guide lights one light. He lights one match, a really long match. And as he lights it, all of a sudden that one little light began to drive the darkness away. There was such a distinctiveness between that light and the darkness. And then he took that light and he lit a person's match on either side of him. And then they lit a person's match on either side of them. And within a few moments, the entire place was illuminating with the light of life. That's the picture that Paul is saying. While you're waiting for the return of the Son of God, Your nature is to be so distinctively different that you are like light in the darkest of darkness. And you are to stand out in such a way because your nature is distinctively different. But not only do we have a distinct nature, the second thing is this, we have a distinct behavior. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Thessalonians. He says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Now what's interesting about this passage is he uses a different kind of contrast. He uses two activities that contrast one another, and he uses two different times that these activities are applied. The two activities he uses is this. He speaks about sleeping, and he speaks about keeping awake. He speaks about drunkenness, and he speaks about sobriety. And he's saying that this, those people who who sleep and are drunk... Are one and the same. Those people who are alert and sober are one and the same. When do these activities take place? Well, two of these activities take place at night. Sleeping and drunkenness take place at night or in darkness. Alertness and soberness take place at daytime or light. And here's what he's saying not only do you have a distinctively different nature. But your behavior is to be different. Just as your character is distinctively different, your conduct is to be distinctively different. Those people who are of the world and of darkness, they sleep, which means that they're indifferent to spiritual things. They are drunk because they pursue Fleshly things, and they live according to a dark nature and according to dark behaviors. But he says, You're children of the light. You don't operate in the nighttime, you operate in the day. You're not to be about sleeping and drunkenness. You are to be a person who is an alert and you're watching with a spiritual intent attuned to the things of God. You are to live in such a way that you're sober minded, you're serious, you're steadfast, you're steady in all that you do. Not only is your nature different, but your behavior is to be so distinctively different that you live according to the day and the light, while people of the world live according to the night and darkness. You are to walk differently. But here's the third thing about the distinctiveness of us. We have a distinct destiny. Not only do we have this distinct nature and this distinct behavior, but we have a distinct destiny. It's different from the world. Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake Or asleep, we might live with him. Now, this is an interesting passage because he says that God hasn't destined us for wrath, but for salvation. Again, he makes a contrast. Those who are under wrath and those who are under grace. There's the contract. He says, those who are under grace are those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, those who are under the wrath of God are the ones who have no relationship with God, and who are living in the darkness. Now here's the difference. When we talk about a person who doesn't know Christ as their Lord and their Savior, we're talking about a person that we call lost. And these are people who by nature are under the wrath of a holy God. God's wrath is not his ambivalent anger or a temper tantrum that he might throw. It is his fixed anger towards sin that never Ever changes. He is always fixed toward that sinful nature. It doesn't matter how we redefine it or reshape it, God's wrath remains. And those people who are in Christ Jesus are not under wrath, but they're under grace. And that grace remains. What's the difference? Here's the difference the difference is this a relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who went to the cross, He's the one who died on our behalf. He's the one who took our penalty on himself. He is the one that satisfied the wrath of a holy God. He is the only one who has satisfied God's wrath in such a way that every person who receives him, who yields to him, is no longer under the wrath of God, but instead under the grace of God. And so in Christ, we have a new nature in Christ Christ. We have a new behavior in Christ. We have a new destiny. Now, why is he going through all of this to tell them that? Here's why he says, Because of your identity, you do not need to fear when he comes as a thief in the night. You do not need to fear the day of the Lord. You do not need to be concerned about the wrath of God because you are covered by the blood of Jesus. You have eternal life in him and you are secure forever. That's the hope that he gives them and that they can walk with the breastplate of faith and love and trusting God in all things. They can walk with the helmet of salvation, understanding that their mind is secure in thinking on these truths that will never change. So he tells us as we're waiting, listen, avoid improper curiosity. Affirm our proper identity. But the third thing he says is this, that we are to apply a godly strategy. Now I'm not going to take long, but here's what he says. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So what do we do in this strategy? We encourage one another. We encourage one another to stay faithful to the cause of the kingdom. We encourage one another to keep vigilant in evangelism and telling the lost about Christ. We encourage one another as we hold up one another in our distinctiveness before the world. Our identity together is that we have been changed. We are children of the light, And we are to walk accordingly. And as we do those things, we can encourage one another. No matter what we're going through, in the midst of persecution, we can encourage one another of who we are in Christ and the promises of God. When we're going through a coronavirus, we can encourage one another of the promises of God and who we are in Christ. When we lose our job, we can encourage one another of who we are in Christ and the promises that God will sustain us in every detail of our lives. And we trust one another implicitly and completely. So as we close out this section, I want to encourage you to avoid improper curiosity. You know you have the truth, and you walk each day With the heart of the return of Christ, it could be today. We affirm our identity in Jesus and we encourage one another as we continue to walk faithfully before the Lord. Would you join me as we pray together? Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, that we can walk in confidence. We thank you, Father, that no matter what happens in our culture or our world, that our confidence is fully in you. In Jesus' name, amen.